Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When I first got into wine, I thought the only career paths were winemaker, sommelier, or like wine retailer. Kind of limiting, yeah? Luckily for me, I learned really quickly that there are plenty of careers dealing with wine beside those. I've been in wine for over a decade now, and while I have worked retail, I knew that wasn't my life path. Being a sommelier, working weekends, standing on my feet, no. And making wine, well, we talked about this last week. That, that just wasn't for me. Today's guest majored in food politics and thought import-export would be her career path. But as luck would have it, she found her way into the wine industry by a chance meeting at a coffee shop in a small village in the Loire Valley. Don't let me spoil her story, though. I'll let her tell it. Meet Kimberly Lequant. My name is Kimberly. I am originally from Queens in New York City. And then I spent the bulk of my high school and then university in Houston and Austin, Texas, respectively. Um, so I attended UT Austin, where I majored in French and minored in food politics. I ended up studying abroad um, in Paris. And I was fortunate enough to receive a scholarship from UT that's essentially funded me to live in Paris for six months and to do in several internships and to write a capstone at the same time. So that was um, just an incredible experience. And after I graduated from UT, I was kind of like, you know what, it's now or never. I have uh, no romantic ties, no rental ties, no property, no job contract, nothing. This is kind of my moment to make my move to France. Um, so that's exactly what I did. And I chose Angers because it's the sister city of Austin, um, where I was a fille au pair, very temporarily. And then I happened to meet my husband during this time. And here I am now. <laughs> we love a good story. And we also love when there's a little romance mixed in. How did you meet your husband? After a few months of being in Angers, I was kind of starting to miss speaking English which is ironic because my goal was kind of to really immerse myself in the French culture and to only speak French and, you know, to kind of avoid speaking English. But after a couple months time, you start to realize um, that your native language is really a very profound part of your identity and you really start to miss it. Uh, so I started volunteering with the Anglophone Library in Angers. And um, every Friday they do this like coffee hour where you can meet French people who want to practice their English with you. So the French lady I was practicing 
or she was practicing English with me. She was like, tell me about your, you know, everything you're going through. Let's go get a coffee. Um, we ended up in a cafe where we were speaking English. So this was a situation where I almost never was in. I was always speaking French other than uh, that. So I was talking to her in English and in, the, in that same cafe, my husband came in with his best friend uh, and they were kind of just like eavesdropping. I think they overheard us speaking English. And at, at some point when the lady went to the bathroom, this was maybe 45 minutes or an hour into um, us being there. When I was alone, they eventually turned around and started talking to me and started asking me like, oh, where are you from? I think I detect an American accent. Are you from the US? And we just started chatting and my husband was, you know, very slyly like, oh, if you want anyone to show you around, you know, here's my number basically. So then we, we started dating after that. It's interesting you say that you wanted to, you miss speaking English and you miss that part of you. Did you feel that while you were fully fluent in French that you still couldn't maybe completely express yourself the same way in French versus English? Um, yes, definitely. I think at that time, even though I was fluent and you know professionally proficient, I still wasn't speaking as fluidly as I wanted to. Today, that's a different story. Now I speak a lot more fluidly than I did back then. Um, but yeah, especially in that period, I it just wasn't as easy for me to express myself. Do you feel like it was easier yeah. to have this uh, these French conversations and to speak totally in French because you were kind of in the, I don't want to say country, but not in a large city? Yeah, I do think that that was easier. I did notice that when I was a student in Paris, I would you know, make so many efforts to only speak French and people would just automatically respond to me in English. And then I noticed here in this region, people have less of a tendency to, to respond to you in English. This is Wine School Dropout Podcast. And this season is Americans in France dealing with culture, uh, food and drinking and life culture and wine, of course. You have a connection to wine in France that no one else here that we've talked to has. I think it's always fun for me to share my experience and kind of demystify uh, this world because I, I find that, yeah, we kind of have this impression that it's this very luxurious, kind of mysterious, enigmatic field when it, it's really not. So my tie um, to wine is that my husband is actually a winemaker. Um, so I was kind of thrown into the countryside and thrown into the, you know, the winery and all of its traditions that come with it and all of the expectations. It's kind of like stepping into a little bit of a time machine almost because you do have the rest of society that is quite progressive and feminist and, you know, all these things. but with the wine industry, you sometimes feel like you've taken a few steps back in time. Now, you weren't working with wine, didn't have any kind of experience or anything with wine other than just probably drinking it from being um, where you are um, in the Loire Valley. And then you meet this guy, you know, he drinks coffee because you're in a cafe. And then you got married. Well, of course, you knew he was a winemaker before that. Then you got married. What was the conversation or the transition like saying that you would kind of start working winery operations or doing things with the winery? 
Yeah, so that was kind of a slow um, process because I wasn't always, you know, intending to work with my husband. Uh, before that, my intention moving to France was to, to eventually work in import-export. So my goal was to always work with small producers, ideally organic, and to export their products into the American market. And we're talking all sorts of artisans like honey producers, jam producers, um, all sorts of food products, um, not specifically wine. But eventually, uh, the first year when I was here, I started to kind of just see what I could do in my free time to help my husband develop that market. So I started to go to wine conferences with him and uh, just during my free time, I'd go around to the other winemakers and learn about their wine and taste all of their wine. And um, even during my free time at home, I would just go and peep into the cellar and see what they were doing and, you know, ask my father-in-law questions. And I was just absorbing everything, tasting everything, learning as much as I could. Um, and then eventually we kind of decided, you know, what are the little projects that I can do? Like whether that's translation. Uh, whether that's contacting Anglophone importers in other countries um, and things like that. So it, it was kind of slow and progressive. And then eventually I just kind of <laughs> developed a little role in the winery. We are called Chateau La Tomaze. That's T-O-M-A-Z-E. And it is the lieu dit, which is kind of like the name of the property itself. I have kind of um, developed more of the creative aspects of the winery. So my kind of passion project was um, rebranding our entire image. So I redid all of our labels, the labels that you would see on our bottles today. That was kind of my ongoing project for about two years. It took quite a long time because we are the ninth generation of our family to be wine producers. So before that, we had my, my in-laws label on the bottle. Um, and they have the same labels since the 90s. So it was quite a project to just kind of totally rebrand and, and kind of give the, the property a facelift, if you will. And my other task in the winery is, of course, developing our export markets. I always knew that I wanted to do um, import-export since I was majoring in food politics. Um, and the internships that I did in France was more so learning about French products, French producers, um, the difference between organic agriculture versus conventional, you know, versus GMO. But I didn't have concrete experience with actual export and all of the legalities and the paperwork. Um, so that I kind of have been learning just by doing, and I'm still learning because it's just a bureaucratic nightmare. So you lived in the region for a bit of time before you started working with the winery. And you're in a smaller town than, say, a Paris or Bordeaux or Lyon. How okay. was it for you being an American woman, being in that region, and then also once you transitioned into wine? And the reason I'm asking that is because... People love Emily in Paris and they, they love mm -hmm. watching the show and laughing about the different things that happen to her at work and how they largely speak to her in English and she bumbles around and, you know, things like that. Did you have an experience like that? So I would say yes and no. I, I did have an experience like that just in the sense of kind of arriving with starry eyes and a bit of na naivety. 
and all these kind of preconceived notions of France. I, I would say maybe I was a little bit more prepared than Emily because I did major in French and we had so many like culture classes and had to, you know, heavily study just so many different layers that Emily doesn't have. Uh, but I would still say, you know, of course you arrive with those stars in your eyes and, and preconceived notions. And then just the no part of the question would just be that my experience can never be like a girl like Emily, because uh, for those of you listening who can't see me, I'm an Asian American. And there are just so many layers to being an American who is a person of color. So as soon as a French person just looks at you without having spoken to you, to them, you're not American. They're not going to assume that you're American. Um, and sometimes even when you tell them that you're American, they just reject that and want to insist on where are you from, from kind of thing. Yeah, I was going to thank you for mentioning the Asian American part because I was trying to weave that into the uh, conversation. Um, how is it for you in, especially in wine in um, the Loire Valley in France, um, being woman, American, Asian American? Yeah, you know, um, I am not going to paint you this beautiful romantic picture. It is tough. It is really, really tough. Um, I've had to develop pretty thick skin and there, there have been a lot of tears shed over this throughout the years. I would say that I'm a lot more resilient now, but this was kind of years in the work of, of just kind of me being bothered by people's comments or, you know, just being really offended by how people react to me. So being a person of color and a woman in wine was really difficult because in the beginning, a lot of people kind of assumed that I was like a Vietnamese immigrant or a Chinese immigrant um, here to marry for papers. And there's that added element of like, oh, this person is attached to a winery. So they must be looking for money or gold digging or whatever, which is just incredibly insane. And I'd like to, you know, explain right away that there is this preconceived notion that like winemakers are automatically rich. But I'd like to remind people that winemakers are farmers. We are in an agricultural field. We work insane hours. We don't have any vacation. It is still an extremely rural type of work. And it's not at all this kind of luxurious, uh, sexy thing that people assume that it is. But unfortunately, even French people have that kind of judgment about winemakers and um, people in wine families. Do you feel that being American and uh, your winemaking family and doing what you do, that has enhanced your experience? So in terms of actually working in wine, I feel like it's hindered my experience. Uh, well, I think more that it's more so just being the person of color mm -hmm. thing. Uh, so I have several kind of answers as, as per usual to your question. Um, you know, when I'm actually at wine conferences and standing behind our stand and, you know, presenting our wines, a lot of people just kind of assume that I'm the intern or just some random like employee or, you know, a temporary person being employed for the wine fair. And they don't actually realize that I'm part of the ninth generation that's actually behind this winery. Um, so in that sense, it's kind of hindered my experience because they just don't take me seriously. But I do feel that being American in terms of just 
being more adventurous with food, I feel like that has ex- enhanced my experience with, for example, food pairings and just being a little bit more creative when when you have someone in the restaurant industry or like a caviste or someone asking you, so what would you pair this wine with? And just being able to give really creative answers that they wouldn't have come up with themselves because Americans, you know, we just have this hodgepodge kind of culture where we love food from all sorts of places. And, you know, new American cuisine has so many influences from literally everywhere. I feel that we are just inherently more open to trying all sorts of different things kind of mixed together. And I'm not saying that French people are closed-minded with that. They're, they're quite open-minded as well. It's just that they don't have the same habit of already having food in front of them that draws influences from so many different corners of the world. And so as an American, I do feel like we're able to just be more creative with food pairings and um, maybe a little bit less rigid as well. It's not a secret that France loves cheese and wine, so not surprising that an entire culture revolves around the consumption of these two great gifts to the culinary world. Come and discover one of the best parts of French culture with the cheese and wine class or a wine tasting class. Join my classes. They're a great opportunity to experience the French terroir. During these two-hour classes, you'll sample some of the finest cheeses and finest wines, learn the techniques and language of cheese tasting and wine tasting, and also the concept of terroir. You'll spend a great evening in a relaxed atmosphere with beautiful surroundings in the heart of Montmartre with me at Cooking with Class Cooking School and get a great head start to fully understand and appreciate our love for French cheese and wine and help you approach them with greater confidence. Visit cookingwithclass.com, C-O-O-K-N, W-I-T-H-C-L-A-S-S and search Paris Classes for more information or to book your date. What is something you wish you knew about French wine, the French wine industry before you moved here? So I think there are two different things that I wish I knew. The first one being just how unintimidating and not mysterious uh, and humble the wine industry really is. Because of course, you know, I had my preconceived notions just like anyone else would. I kind of just assumed as a regular consumer here or just even in the US, I I kind of assume that French people knew everything that there is to know about wine just because they're French and it's part of their culture. But I kind of wish that I knew beforehand that that's not exactly true. Many French people, in fact, most French people actually don't know everything that there is to know. And, you know, and that's not a bad thing. It's just such a huge universe. You can't know everything that there is to know unless that is literally your life's work. But I, I do wish I knew how unintimidating it was kind of just going into it. I thought that it was like extremely pretentious, but it's really not. It has really kind of humble, just a really humble background with, you know, winemakers 
being very much so aligned um, with being farmers essentially and being attached to the soil and their, yeah, just like having their hands in the dirt. And I wish I kind of was more aware of that beforehand. And then the second thing I would say is that I think just as a consumer, um, because I was so concerned with buying organic or buying things that was like the least chemically infiltrated, I kind of wish I knew more about where my money was going in terms of like buying wine from a big cooperative versus an independent winemaker. So when I was in the States, I was kind of just wanting to buy anything that I could get my hands on that was, you know, accessible to me and learning about that AOC or, or IGP or whatever, and just tasting it and figuring that out for myself. And I kind of wish that we had more information about like, oh, this bottle of rosé is actually from a co-op that assembles, you know, grapes from all sorts of regions. Like you don't actually know where it's coming from. And in fact, a lot of it could be from Spain. And then they say that it's from France, but it's not. But now I just have a lot more knowledge. I know what to look for when trying to support like an independent winemaker, like like ourselves, for example, or, or like the colleagues that we, we work with at, um, at wine fairs. Being in France, the access we have to winemakers makes a huge difference in our mm -hmm. understanding and appreciation of the wine itself and then also the industry. Mm -hmm. You've probably been to wine fairs and wine tastings and things in the States, and you're speaking to, you know, a representative from the distributor or from the import company and the way they talk about wine and the way they perceive wine or put it out there is much different than going mm -hmm. to a wine fair here. And you're talking to the guy in the plaid shirt, dirty jeans, dirt under his nails. And I'm not saying that in a negative way. It's because he drove up from the winery and like mm -hmm. he's the one working the vines. And so how he explains it, the passion that they have when they are given these explanations of what they're doing, what their wine tastes like. Uh, it is a bit of a shock sometimes when we'll get, you know, someone from the States at a professional wine fair here in France. And just right off the bat, they'll ask you, you know, about very precise percentages and numbers and technicalities in terms of like residual sugar or like percentage of alcohol or what is the dosage? And it could be a little bit of a shock because it's like they just want the numbers side. And then sometimes, you know, discussing with importers, especially U.S.-based ones, they will immediately talk about margins. Like what is the margin for the distributor? What is their margin? You know, uh, what is the markup that they can do? So it goes straight into that numbers aspect and kind of ignores the entire year's worth of blood, sweat, and tears that goes into, you know, these bottles. I, I guess it really does depend on the region because, you know, a lot of the regions in the South, they'll have so many different varietals in one wine. And so they don't remember the percentages, which is completely normal. But I would say in the Loire, it's a very common question to ask, like, what is the cépage? Um, and usually we'll know the responses to that in more precise percentages because generally uh, I would say in the Loire we're a little bit more like mono cépage so mm -hmm. like our wines tend to be just one cépage or if we do have a blend it's like two three maximum and we generally know the percentages uh there but yeah I, I would say that if you ask the same question in, in the Loire it's not a shocking question at all and they're quite happy to to answer that question 
Well, let me ask you the question. So the wines of Chateau La Tomaz, what wines, uh, how many wines do you have? Uh, the style of wine, grapes, tell me about Chateau La Tomaz. So we have between 12 to 14 different types of wine, depending on the year. There are some bottles that we can make uh, when we have an exceptional year, just perfect climate, no frost, uh, you know, no drought, things like that. And there are other years that we can't make the same bottles. But here in Anjou, we're quite lucky to have a microclimate. Uh, we are south of Angers, so we're south of the Loire. And the, the river actually acts as a natural geographical barrier. So if you just cross the Loire into Angers, they get a lot more rainfall than we do south of the river, um, which is why north of Angers, they, they don't have wineries there. They're more so, you know, growing apples and pears and, and different types of fruit. Um, and they have a lot more like livestock over there because it's just a different climate, even though it's half an hour away. So here we have a really nice microclimate that allows us to make all sorts of different wines you know, we don't have a specific climate like the south of France where it's hotter, drier, etc. So here in Anjou, we can make dry whites, we can make sweet whites, we can make reds, roses, and sparkling. Tell me about the sparkling. Yeah, so we have Crémont, Crémont de Loire. Um, it is the same method as champagne, but of course we can't call it champagne because it's not uh, in the region of champagne, which I know you know all about. I, I love so that. This is, for, this is for the people. This is for yes. the people. <laughs> true, 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 true. So we have a white Cremont, and then we also have a rosé. The white one is mostly Chardonnay. Uh, usually it's 100%. Sometimes if we have a little bit extra Chenon, which is a different grape variety, we will put a bit of Chenon in it. And then the Rosé Cremant is 100% Grolo Gris, which is a different type of uh, grape variety. One that a lot of people may not be familiar with. Yeah, and it's quite Loire-specific, uh, so I would, definitely, I would definitely check it out if you are interested in that. It's, um, it's not a typical great variety that you would find in like a Southern France rosé, for example. Give me kind of the flavor profile of that grape. Do you make it in, um, uh, could you say Grulo Gris, do you make it in a white or is it just in the rosé? That is just in our Cremant Rosé. Okay, so can you give me the flavor profile or like tasting notes of the uh, rosé Cremant? Yeah, so on the nose, um, both of our Cremants are brut, so they're dry. So on the nose, especially with the Cremant Rosé, you'll get kind of like citrus skin notes, um, lots of kind of grapefruit skins, um, a little bit of that bitterness, but not in a bad way. Uh, it's very crisp as well. Um, I would say sometimes, depending on the year, you can get a little bit of so in French, they say bonbon anglais, which I think they're basically talking about like all types of like gummy flavors, like gummy bear flavors mm, um, okay. in the nose. And then when you actually taste it, you also have kind of like the citrusy feel still with the grapefruit notes. I would say that's like the most um, dominant note that comes to mind. Um, and then because it is dry, you're not going to have like the roundness that sugar will give you. 
working in a, a wine, working in with a wine family in the Loire family, I won't ask you your favorite wine because clearly it's one of yours. Did your wine preference change once you moved to France and then moved uh, into working in wine in your family? So when I was in the U.S., I fell in love with Vouvray. And I didn't know that it was because it was the great Chenin that I was really, really liking. So when I was in the U.S., that was my favorite wine. And then moving here, I learned more about the actual grape. Uh, and my favorite wine is still Chenin. Anything that's Chenin, it's kind of like, uh, it's just such an interesting grape. And the wines that are able to be made from this grape are, are so fascinating. You have a huge range from dry to dessert wines to sparkling. So funnily enough, in terms of actual taste, my preferences have, haven't changed. I will say that in terms of perception, it has changed because I think just kind of being over there, I would have, I would have probably naively preferred like say a champagne because of that kind of marketed curated image behind champagne. Like it's very, you know, luxurious, it's very sexy, it's very high quality, this and that. But coming here, I've learned that, well, champagne is no longer automatically luxurious and high quality in my head just because it's called champagne. Like the walls have kind of been broken down in those terms. So now I, I, I must admit, I'm more of a Cremant girl. Um, it's the same method, but at a much more reasonable price point. It's, you know, less curated, less marketed, but it's the same amount of work that goes in. And sometimes, you know, sometimes even more, especially if you're getting it from an independent small scale winemaker that doesn't have these fancy automated machines doing a lot of the, the work for him or her. Absolutely agree. Um, tell us where we can find you on the internet, social media, all of that good stuff. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a pleasure to chat with you. Um, I think we could probably chat for days just about our, our mutual experience. But you can find us on Instagram. Our handle is La Tomaz, L-A-T-O-M-A-Z-E. We are also on Facebook. You can find me personally on LinkedIn. For example, my name is Kimberly and my last name is Lecointre. So that's L-E-C-O-I-N-T-R-E. And I would absolutely love to connect with anyone that, that wants to connect and that just wants to chat about, you know, maybe their experience in the wine industry or just their experience as an American in France or working sort of along with France, uh, even if they're US based or, or really anywhere else, I'd love to connect. Perfect. With every episode so far, there's been a common pain point, the French language. You cannot speak with an expat without discussing how language affects our interactions, work, and well, our overall life. But also an ongoing theme, the resilience and the desire to push forward. We decided to move here, so learning the language to be a real part of the culture and society is a must. We aren't going to let a little thing like language and communication stop us, are we? Beyonce could know. Thank you for listening to Wine School Dropout. 
This podcast was produced by Studio Ochinta and hosted by me, Tanisha Townsend. Our executive producer is Lori Martinez. Sound design and production by Luis Lopez and Kiara Santella. Production coordination by Catalina Oyos. Our theme was done by Gabrielle Damaso. Music is by Makai Beats. Our art is by Tiffany DeLune. Follow us at Wine School Dropout on Instagram. If you'd like the show, tell a friend about it and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, sit back, relax, and have a glass. What's the one thing you've never told anyone? People just like you tell all in a podcast called The Secret Room. If you're a true story fan and you can't get enough of people's most intimate dreams, desires, and shame, you will love The Secret Room. Like Mila's deathbed confession that her daughter's absent father is a movie star, or Jen's secret love affair with a man on death row, or the way Joey falls in erotic love with inanimate objects. People all around you carry the most amazing secrets, and you're invited to the secret room for a front row seat to spectacular stories that will touch you, jar you, and amaze you. Search for The Secret Room, a podcast about the stories no one ever tells. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.